2: Listen to Finding Matt Drudge on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And we return to our American stories. The oldest surviving photograph in the world was taken in 1826. For reference, that's when John Quincy Adams was president, who, coincidentally, is also the first president to be photographed. So needless to say, photography has been an industry for a very long time. Our next story is about a family involved in that industry. Here's our own Monty Montgomery with a story. Our
5: story begins in Joplin, Missouri, the hometown of Joshua and Derek Carter, the grandsons of Dwayne Steinley, But they had another name for him. We called him bob Ob. That
4: was kind of his grandpa name that we called him. So we were always always saying bob and stuff like
0: that. And um, Josh and I were very, very close to our grandfather, partly because, so we have a sister that's eight years younger than me and 10 years younger than Josh. And when our mother was pregnant with our sister, she uh, was on bed rest and was, was not doing very well for many, many months. And so that's actually, uh, at that point is when my grandfather semi-retired from the business to come over to Joplin and before it had always been, you know, kind of a treat of getting to go and spend the weekend at our grandparents, and then getting to spend every day for a year with our grandfather was just so much fun. He lived with us and took care of us and took us to school, and we spent all day every day with our grandfather. And our grandfather
4: was a very curious person. He liked to learn and um, was always interested in finding out about new things. He he traveled all over the world, all over the country, learning anything that interested him. Um, that was something that he always was very good with us about as well, he would take us as little boys and we would just drive all over the place and he'd take us into shops or he'd take us to, um, I believe we went to a... A power plant that's the one
0: that I remember. We were driving through the field and I remember I was probably six or seven years old and I asked him, I said, well, you know, what is that massive thing out there is uh just outside of pittsburgh kansas and he said well that's a power plant Do you want to go find out how it works and i said well sure and he pulls up to the front gate of the power plant and i was six and josh was probably eight and he says well i've got my boys back here and they want to learn how the power plant works can someone give us a tour and the front gate guy said well i suppose and they called the manager of the power plant down and we got a, a two hour two hour tour of the power plant free 9 11 world so Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of how he was of, you know, he always wanted to to find out how something worked or what was going on. And um, our grandfather
4: first got interested in photography when he was in high school. He started out doing wedding photography and shooting um, children and, and things like that. That's what he spent summers doing, saving up money to buy more photography
0: equipment And he never really thought that he was gonna be a photographer as his profession. It was a hobby, it was something that he thought that he'd go on and get some other type of a a business job or some other type of a career, but he really enjoyed photography all the time as soon as he started shooting in high school. He did college,
4: and then before he graduated college, he was drafted for the Korean War. And so he went to Korea. He actually arrived in Korea just as the war was coming to an end, and he was a crystal grinder for the radio, but he also did photography while he was there, and he was also kind of a um, practical jokester, and uh, and so the guys would play pranks on each other, and one of the stories he told us was the, the radar technicians would shoot the radar at him as he was walking across with his bag of flash bulbs, and he would buzz a light would, would shine and he, all of his flashbulbs would go off all at once and so that was always a fun story that he, he would tell of his time in Korea, getting zapped with the radar so that all his flashbulbs would go off. He kind of
0: developed somewhat of a reputation in Korea as a jokester, as, as Josh said, and uh, some of the officers came and, and wanted to play a joke on some of the, one of the higher ranking officers And so they got our grandfather to go and take a picture of the officer. And then he went and took a different picture of the latrine and superimposed it when during the developing process and the officers gave it to the the higher ranking officer as a joke towards the end. But the higher officer was uh, so impressed by it. He thought it was a great joke and he actually got my my grandfather a job to go and and take photos of the, the whole fleet as they were leaving um, because he was impressed with his photography skills. When he returned from Korea, he got his degree in math and business, and he had a good friend who was in the, the Navy, and they had both just gotten out around the same time, and so one of the things that they really enjoyed from their travels was pizza and there were no pizza places in Southeast Kansas at that time, and so they decided to go in together and open the first pizza place in Parsons. It didn't do very well, and and he kind of sat down and reevaluated what he wanted to do and and what kind of a business, and he said, well, I, I always loved photography. Maybe I need to do something with photography. And so he became a salesman for film, actually, and he would go to Wichita and Kansas City and Tolson and buy wholesale film and come back and sell it to drugstores in the local area. He did that for two or three years, really, and he realized that a lot of the drugstores that he was selling in were sending all of the developing off to Tulsa, Kansas City, or Wichita to have it done because there weren't anyone doing the developing. There were no labs in this area. And he said, well, I've got a lot of experience in the darkroom of doing developing. And so my grandfather, he kept selling film during the day. And then at night, he offered an overnight developing service. Just a one-man kind of shop that he'd spend all night in the darkroom developing everyone's film
5: so that it could be ready for the next morning. It was a very slow process to begin. But Dwayne quickly made a name for himself in the photo processing industry because of his innovative strategies and fast pace of work. He had
4: photo huts. So little kiosks all over the region where people could drop off their film and it would all get processed and then sent back out to the huts. And so that was a very successful endeavor for him in the late 70s. Our mom tells us a funny story too about something you might not think about, but game film, football games, they would film it all and all of the coaches in the whole area would be sitting out in our front lobby, all sitting next to each other after they just had a big game against each other the night before to pick up all their game film. And so we, we offered an overnight service to get all the game film ready so they could go and
0: watch it the next day. I think one of the, the next big things that really launched the business, I think it's, it's always been told, is the great disc film
5: debacle of 1983. For those who might not know or don't remember, disc film was film, as the name suggests, wrapped around a plastic disc inside a camera. The photos were low quality, and they were harder to process than normal film. But that did not mean people didn't use them, as Dwayne's photo was about to find out. The major retailer offered a major special for
0: Christmas in 1983, and that was 80% off of disc film processing, and it was guaranteed that you would have your disc film processed and returned to you by Christmas. And they did this only about a, a week and a half or two weeks before Christmas. And they didn't think it was gonna be a big thing because disc film was not popular at all at that point and so they thought we just need to get rid of all this disc film. It turned out that it exploded and they had several tractor trailers full of disc film that needed to get processed. And so there was a lab down in Arkansas that just could not handle it. And so they started calling all of the other photo labs within a 200 mile radius saying, can you help us, can you help us? And no one was, everyone turned it away and said, we have no interest in wanting to process that much disc film, especially a week before Christmas. And my grandfather said, send us all the trucks and we'll figure it out. And they worked all through the day and all through the night for about 10 straight days and got all of this disc film processed by Christmas. And it kind of being able to accomplish that endeared him so much to some of these major national uh, retailers that ever since that point, he started getting a lot more work and contracts from some of the major national retailers because he had made kind of this name for himself right before Christmas in, uh, in 1983. And then through the 2000s,
4: we were one of the largest and ultimately the last Kodachrome Lab.
1: And you've been listening to Joshua and Derek Carter tell the story of their grandfather. And it's a story about so much more. It's a story about innovation. It's a story about change. I mean, how many people even remember the photo mats, those little huts all over the country where you ran film to? Though there is a renaissance of film and old school developing, it is not how most of us process our photographs anymore. It's instantaneous, it's on our phones, and we text them along. When we come back, The story of the last days of Kodachrome here on Our American Stories.
2: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip,
3: who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka.
1: And I'm Skip Bronson.
3: And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way.
1: Tell it like it is, and even sing a song or two.
3: This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our
1: Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: One of the best shows of the year, according to Apple, Amazon, and Time, is back for another round. We have more insightful conversations between myself... Paul Muldoon and Paul McCartney about his life and career. It was
1: 20 years ago today. We had a big
3: bear of a land, called Mal Evans, he was on the road. And uh, I was coming back on the plane, and he said, Will you pass the salt and pepper? And I misheard him. <laughs> I said, What? Sergeant Pepper? This season, we're diving deep into some of McCartney's most beloved songs. Yesterday, Band on the Run, Hey Jude and McCartney's favourite song in his entire catalogue here, there and everywhere Listen to season 2 of McCartney A Life in Lyrics on the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts
1: And we're back with Our American Stories and the story of Dwayne's photo in Parsons, Kansas. When we last left off, Joshua and Derek Carter, the grandsons of Dwayne Steinley, the founder of Dwayne's photo, were telling the story of how their grandfather came from the Korean War, tried his hand at pizza making, and ultimately ended up doing what he loved for his career. And that is, of course, all things having to do with photography. Eventually, they would become the last Kodachrome Lab In the United States. Let's continue with the story.
0: In the early 2000s, as digital was starting to take over,
5: film was in decline, and so we were ultimately the last Kodachrome lab. Kodachrome, released in 1935 by the Kodak Corporation, was the first real success in color photography, and it was a huge deal in the film industry. But processing it was a bit of a hassle.
0: Kodachrome has a very, very complex and difficult to manufacture chemical formulation. The reason why Kodachrome was so popular is it had extremely vibrant colors, but you only got those extremely vibrant colors because of this very, very intense and very difficult process to produce it. So. Due to both EPA regulations as well as just manufacturing costs, Kodak decided in the late 2000s that it was not going to be effective to continue producing it. And so they also did not feel like it was going to be a good investment to find new chemicals uh, that would be able to continue the production. The news got out six, eight months ahead of time that Come end of 2010, there would be no more Kodachrome processing. And by that point, we were already the very last lab in the entire world that was processing Kodachrome. So those last six months were, it was a really just crazy time for the company. People were showing up from other countries with thousands of rolls and boxes, begging to make sure that theirs got in before the last oil was processed and before the chemicals ran out on it. By the very end of it, in 2010, when it finally stopped, national news was broadcasting from the parking lot and people were camped out in the backfield, and it was a crazy event, really. So in 2017, a bunch of uh, film folks knew this story and decided to make a movie about it. And so that movie is called Kodachrome and this movie's now made it onto Netflix and people are seeing it, and so we're having a resurgence of people sending film again as well.
4: Something else we've seen since Kodachrome too, a lot of folks have been making, I guess you could call it a pilgrimage to Parsons to drop their film off personally. We'll have a group once or twice a week that comes in and they'll come in from each side of the country, say, oh, I just drove here, you know, did 14 hours in the car to drop this film off and I just wanted to see the place and see where it all happened, so. We'll give them a tour and let them see everything that goes on in the lab.
5: An interesting side note. Joshua and Derek weren't full-time employees of their grandfather's business during the whole Kodachrome fiasco. So how did they end up there and why?
0: So I was working for a large national consulting firm actually doing business turnarounds.
4: And I was working at a law firm in Joplin. In 2018, my grandfather had asked me to come in and look at some different options of how can we grow the company or how can we get more of a presence online because in a lot of ways the company was still kind of operating in 1999 so um, in 2018 is when Derek and I were really starting to
0: look at the company and seeing what the options were with it. And he was actually running the business full-time up until the day he died. It was looking like the business might finally close after 60 years and he did not want that to happen and we took over and kind of started our journey here. So I'm 27. I'm 30. So we went through a a pretty long process when we first got here of, of trying to learn it you know we had knowledge about film and cameras and things growing up just being in this family it's, it's kind of hard not to learn a lot of things or, or pick it up from our grandfather but In terms of actual, the film processing things, there was a very steep learning curve for us when we first got here. And that's something that there's a lot of folks who have been here 20, 25, 30 years, who have made their whole career and were very good about, you know, really being experts in the industry. And so it's something that we've learned a lot from them. But then also, You know, we found a number of things. Our our grandfather really wanted to make sure that a lot of this info was passed down. And when I was first going through his office and and his desk and things, one of the most helpful things is he actually wrote in the late 1980s, a, a guide to photo finishing that had all the notes for the lab of everything you need to remember and everything that you need to do to be able to have everything running in the building really well and and we found we continue to find a lot of those things so um, you know we pour over as much of that information here as we possibly can to make sure that we really kind of become experts in this field because we don't necessarily we're not brought up in it you know and when it was in its heyday in the in the 80s and 90s but then also There's been a huge resurgence in film amongst younger people, It's much like the resurgence in vinyl records. For us going and and trying to deal with ever increasing volumes of film now, it, it has been probably the biggest challenge for us is being able to use equipment designed decades and decades ago. And so we've had to also try and get creative with how we're doing it, looking at We've got a 3D printer in the back for printing up gears and different parts and things. And then we're always looking for people uh, who can help us. And it's amazing, a lot of these people either knew or knew of our grandfather. And we'll call them because we see that, hey, you uh, used to work in the industry or you, know, you you make a part that could be used. And they say, oh, I, I remember selling that to your grandfather in 1985. I, I'd love to, to help you. And a lot of people have come out of retirement specifically to help us and to help get things back going. We're still
4: reaping the benefits of the relationships that our grandfather made three decades ago.
0: We've also learned a lot more about our grandfather from being in this business and talking to people who knew him in a different way from from how we knew him. And those stories have been some of the most interesting. We were talking to the head of one of the big national organizations uh, and said that his first encounter, he told me about his first encounter with my grandfather when he was a very young man and he said that at all of these trade shows my grandfather used to organize a big card game for all the CEOs of all the retail organizations and Kodak and all those people and they'd all come and, and he'd have a card game he said he, the first time he went, he was expecting, you know, my grandfather to let everyone win to try and get business. And he said, oh no, my grandfather took all their money and they were all upset. My grandfather said, oh, well, if you want your money back, you can give me some business, I'll give you a discount. And he said he got a lot of business that way because everybody just thought it was hilarious that, oh, Dwayne went and took all their money at the card game. And so, yeah, that was, that was one that we had never heard before and, and didn't know about. But there's a lot of those kind of stories that we learn about our grandfather kind of, you know, by meeting people who knew him that we wouldn't have, have known otherwise. Our goal, we certainly, we wanted to continue as long as possible. Uh, we want to keep, you know, having film grow and um, that's something that we really try and promote the industry with young folks. A lot of the new people who are shooting film are 18 to 25 and we are very, very excited about that. It's something that they're picking it up and we want them to keep shooting film as a hobby or a passion for the rest of their lives. And if, you know, we can support them in that, that is certainly our goal is, um, you know, until the the last roll of film on earth is, is out there and been developed, our goal is to keep it open and keep doing it.
1: And a great job on the production by Monty Montgomery. A special thanks to Joshua and Derek Carter who shared the story of their grandfather. And also a special thanks to Katrina Hine for finding this story and getting us the audio. The story of the last days of Kodachrome and the last Kodachrome lab in the United States. and In the end, a family business story, and we love them here on the show. The story of the last days of Kodachrome here on Our American Stories.